Well, good morning. My name is uh, Destin Garner. For those of you who don't know me, I am the student pastor here at Rock Point Church, and I've been in that role going on four years now. So I just want to take a brief moment, one minute before we get into the sermon, tell you a little bit about student ministry if you're not familiar with it. Kind of our goal, what we're trying to do over there in that other building week in and week out is connect students to God's word, to God's people, and to God's purpose. And so we're connecting students to God's word by offering 13 different discipleship opportunities. We have classes on apologetics, classes on systematic theology. Uh, we teach them man skills. We teach them salvation. We spend a year in the gospel. So that's one way we're connecting students to God's word. We connect students to God's people in that we have over 80 volunteer leaders who show up and serve in some form or some fashion. We connect students to God's purpose by multiple events throughout the year, allowing students to use their God-given gifts, talents, and abilities to further the cause of Christ through service and through leadership. And so I just got to say, I'm honored and thankful to be a part of the student ministry, to be a part of Rock Point Church. Those students over there, they're amazing, and they have amazing potential. So as a student pastor, it'd be amiss for me not to stand here and say, as a church body, anything you can do to continue to receive, equip, impact, and send the next generation for the glory of God, I pray that you do it. It would be a worthwhile investment, and you would make an eternal impact in their lives. But that's not why I'm here this morning, just to talk about student ministry. I want to talk about two words associated with Thanksgiving. It's not turkey and dressing. It's not pumpkin pie. It's not even Dallas Cowboys. All right, it's two words we don't commonly associate with Thanksgiving. Here, here's the two words I want to talk about today. The unfortunate reality is that sometimes Thanksgiving we have a little anxiety and a little judgment that goes on. A little anxiety, a little judgment. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly recap last week's sermon that Randy or Matthew, depending on which sermon you were in, uh, talked to you about do not worry. And then we're going to jump in. The bulk of my time with you is going to be spent in the text over do not judge. Do not judge. In a, in a message I've titled Logs, dogs, and hogs, okay? Partly because I'm from Arkansas, and that just seems to fit well with me, and partly because I'm still a student pastor and can get away with a goofy title like that. So the first thing we want to do is recap last week's sermon. Randy and Matthew talked to you about do not worry. And their main point was this. We worry about what we're devoted to. We worry about what we're devoted to. That's why in the text it said you cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love one, you're going to hate the other, you're going to be devoted to one, and you'll despise the other. You see, the problem with our worry arises when we don't see Jesus as better. When, when we love something more than him, worry will follow that. And so they talked about that. Well, one pastor, I think he kind of summed it up a great way, and that, that passage, that text, he said, it's kind of like a worry-worship seesaw. When the worship of God goes down, the worry of life will go up. But when the worship of God goes up, the worry of life will go down. So this Thanksgiving, this Thursday, if you're starting to feel like that, a little stressed, a little anxious, we just have to remember Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Put that into practice. Do not be anxious. Do not worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, Make your request to God, and may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that what worship is? Prayer, thanksgiving, in every moment, for everything. 
We do that and hopefully worship will go up and worry will go down. And then in the text we see there's a movement. That was kind of the end of Matthew 6 and now Jesus turns his attention and his focus not from our treasures and our worries but now to our judgment of others. Probably why scholars kind of said this is a new chapter and so he moves into that. So I want us to think about some judgment that may happen this coming Thursday, right? Thanksgiving. There's a little bit of judgment that goes around at Thanksgiving. you got family coming in. You've got a house made for six, and you've got 36 in it, and it just kind of creeps up. So I wrote some things down to get us thinking about ways we may judge at Thanksgiving. And I know this is probably not your family, but if you hear something on here that, that kind of resonates, you can say an amen to it. But uh, <clears throat> just a few examples. Let's see. Uh, somebody, maybe a lady sitting around, and she looks at a guy on the couch and says, what a bum. He doesn't even help with the dishes. He just sits there watching football all day. God, talk about Thanksgiving. I'm thankful I'm not married to that guy. Right? And then the bum's wife, you know, she sees another guy doing dishes, and she responds, oh, that hardworking man. Look at him in that kitchen scrubbing those dishes and those soft hands. He's so serving. You know, God, talk about Thanksgiving. I'd be a lot more thankful if I were married to a man like him. And then we have the Marys and the Marthas of the family, you know, right? The one who's like, uh, hey, just chill out. Don't be so bossy. Don't be in such a hurry. It's a holiday for crying out loud. Just sit back and relax. And the person who's being told they're bossy, they're thinking in their mind, those lazy, ungrateful people. If it wasn't for me, we wouldn't have Thanksgiving dinner, right? I'm the glue that holds this family together. I mean, that's what they're thinking couple other comments here. Maybe someone shows up and you you go, did they buy another new car? How many is that this year? Is he back with his old wife or is that another new one? Are they pregnant again? I can't believe they let their kids do that, say that, eat that, watch that. And why do all their kids have a nicer cell phone than I do? And is that all kids do? They just look at their cell phone? I bet if I took it away, they just pass out, right? Is that my mom's recipe, or did you use your own this year? Is that your fifth or sixth glass of wine? And what would Thanksgiving be like without the TV on all day? Does every NFL team have a game? And is she really bringing her boyfriend? He's not even part of the family. And then the biggest judgment of all, do we have to do this again next month? And so Thanksgiving has a little bit of judgment with it. But we can't help it, right? We're society that judges. We have shows on TV where we judge people singing. We judge people's dancing. We even judge the food that they make. You go online, you look at reviews because you're judging restaurants you're going to go to. You're judging hotels you're going to stay at. For some of you, you've got to make judgments about the schools you put your kids in, whether it's college or charter or private or public or homeschool. You've got to make judgments about that. Some of you guys and girls, you have to make judgments about who you're going to hire for your company, who you're going to fire. Are we going to go through that acquisition or not? And this is kind of who we are. We're a society that makes judgments. When we judge, we we have a little tendency to feel bad about it because we know this text. It says, do not judge. And we're like, well, but if I don't judge, I feel kind of stupid and kind of, you know, ignorant. So which one is it? Should we judge or should we not judge? And there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of confusion around this in our culture and our society. But I believe that you and I can have crystal clear clarity on what we are to judge, on who we are to judge, 
and how we are to judge. If we understand the four parts of Jesus' teaching on judgment found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So let's open our text. Let's go there today. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Judge not, that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We've got to understand the four parts of Jesus' teaching on judgment so we know what to judge, who to judge, and how to judge. The first part is this. Jesus gives us a rule. In verse 1, Jesus gives us a rule, judge not that you not be judged. Now, when we see the word judge, we ought to just pause right there. What does it mean to judge? Why is Jesus telling us not to judge? There's a lot of confusion. What is that word actually defined as? And so you go back and you look at the Greek word that we translate into judge, and this isn't much helpful either because the Greek word has six different definitions. Six different definitions. So we're still trying to figure out which one is it. Let me read the six different definitions to you. Is it to decide, to prefer? Is Jesus telling us not to evaluate, to hold a view, to make a legal decision, to condemn? When you read those six definitions, you kind of start chunking them into categories and saying, hey, which one of these categories is it? The first category is this. Is Jesus Jesus telling us not to judge in a decisive sense? Is he telling us not to use our God-given intellect to make wise decisions, informed choices, moral values, and godly opinions? No. That's not what's in view here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Yes, we are to make judgments in a decisive sense. Well, what about the next category? Are we to make judgments in a judicial sense? Is Jesus saying that we should get rid of the court system? That we should get rid of the people and processes to help determine innocence and guilt? Is Jesus saying we should do away with things to settle civil disputes? No, of course not. That's not what's in view here. So yes, we can judge in a judicial sense. The third category is this. Is Jesus telling us not to judge in a critical sense? Yeah, that's what he's talking about. To criticize, to condemn, to denounce, to revile, to chastise, to berate. That's what's in view here. That aligns with the rest of the kingdom message we've been studying in the Sermon on the Mount. So the command to judge not is not a requirement to be blind, but rather a requirement to be merciful. And then when we read that first verse, it says, judge not that you not be judged. And I can't ask, I can't help but ask, by whom? Who's going to judge me? Is it you? Is it others? Is it God? What relationship is in view here? And so maybe it's us and God. You know, now we think, hey, if I don't judge, God will never judge me. Well, I don't know if that's what the text is saying, right? From the moment we're conceived, we have imputed and inherited sin. We live a few days, we have personal sin. We've already been condemned by God. We've already been declared guilty by God for our sin. And so this text is not saying, hey, if you don't judge, then God's just not going to see all that sin. 
And we also know the future tense of this, that, hey, Christians will go to the Bama seat of Christ. You'll be judged and given rewards there. Non-Christians will go to the great white throne judgment and be, if their name's not in the land, book of life, they're sentenced to eternal separation from him. And this text is not saying, hey, if you don't judge, that'll determine your salvation. That's not the case here. We know that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by works. Not by whether or not we judge. What's in view here, if this really is us and God's relationship, is this. When we're judging, when we're condemning people, we're taking the place of God. And there's kind of a modern day, present day answering we have to do for that. So maybe that's it. Maybe our relationship with us and God is in view. Maybe it's our relationship with us and others that's in view here. Right? I mean, this is a great principle. It's not a rule. It's not like every time you judge, you're going to get judgment right back. But, I mean, you go around, you live this life, and you start putting out a lot of judgment, and you're probably going to get some back. It seems to fit the context of the passage, right? A little bit later, he's talking about human relationships about a brother. And so we can say, you know what, maybe this text is about us and God. Maybe it's about us and others. Personally, I think it's a little bit of both, okay? But I'll let you be the judge of that. So there's the first one. He gives us, yeah, someone got it, all right. I'll work on my jokes. He gives us a rule. Now Jesus is going to give us a reason, a reason. Verse 2, for the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We see this rhythm, this pattern throughout Scripture. We've already seen it in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. In the Lord's Prayer, Lord, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. And so there's this boomerang effect that we feel, that we know happens in Scripture, right? You get out what you put in. You reap what you sow. In just a few verses in chapter 7, Jesus is going to say, treat others the way you want to be treated. And so there's this boomerang effect that's taking place here. Now, if our relationship with others is in view, if that's what Jesus is talking about, Here's what Jesus is asking in verse 2. He's saying this. Do you want others to judge you with the same standard you use to judge them? Now, if our relationship with God is in view, here's what Jesus is saying. Do you want God to judge you with the same standard you use to judge others? See, disciples who take it upon themselves to be the judge of what another does actually usurps the place of God and therefore becomes answerable to him. Listen to this quote. Do not assume the place of God by deciding you have the right to stand in judgment over all. Do not do it, I say, in order to avoid being called to account by God whose place you usurp. So we can make judgments in a decisive sense. We can make judgments in a judicial sense. We are never to make judgments in a critical sense. That's not our role to condemn someone. That's God's place. So this command to judge not is not a command to stop thinking, to stop being human. It's just a command to stop thinking we're God, to stop playing him. And when I read this passage, I originally thought measurement was kind of like, oh, if I give four ounces of grace to you and, you know, a gallon of justice to you, you'll give four ounces of grace back and a gallon of justice back. But what I read in studying for this is that there was an old rabbinic tradition. And maybe Jesus had this in mind when he was saying that. That God didn't have ounces and gallons of measurements. God only had two measurements. One of justice and one of mercy. 
And we know that justice is getting what you deserve. And mercy is not getting what you deserve. So if this is the case, if this is what Jesus had in mind as he's saying this to his disciples, maybe this is what he's saying. Do you want God to give you what you deserve? Or would you rather him extend mercy to you? And the way you answer that is by whether or not you give people what they deserve or whether you extend mercy to them. So he gives us a rule and he gives us a reason. And now the chunk of the text, Jesus is going to give us a reflection. He wants us to really turn in to look at ourselves before we start judging and helping others. Verse 3 and 4, let's read that. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? Now see, speck here, it's a small piece of foreign matter. Right, just maybe a a speck of sawdust, maybe a toothpick, something like that. Just really small. Still obstructs, still a problem, but it's very small. Maybe we can interpret it as a minor shortcoming, a minor shortcoming. And then there's the log, right? Other, Other translations say a plank or a beam. It literally means a massive timber used to hold up a roof or to bar a door. So think Lord of the Rings, right, when they're storming the castle and they have the big door in the front and they throw that timber down in front of it. That's how big it is, right? This is a hyperbole. This is an exaggeration. Jesus is being kind of, you know, just crazy about this because he's trying to make the point that what you and I criticize in others, we tend to excuse in ourselves. What we criticize in others, we tend to excuse in ourselves. Best example of this in all of Scripture is David Bathsheba and Nathan, right? You know the story. David sees Bathsheba. Oh, yeah, bring her to me. You know, sleeps with her. He's like, now we got to get rid of the husband. Let's send him to the front lines of the battle. He's off. He dies. And then Nathan the prophet comes to David and says, hey, David, there's this guy. He had lots and lots of sheep, and uh, he had a visitor come in. And instead of using one of his own sheep, He went and stole this other guy's sheep. And this guy only had one sheep, one little lamb that he took care of from birth. And and the guy stole that sheep to feed his visitor. And David's irate. He pronounces death. He's like, off with his head. This guy's going to die. Right? And then Nathan turns and says, David, it's you. It's you. See, he's criticizing in others what he excuses in himself. Sheep stealing. Oh, we ought to kill those people. But adultery, murder? Oh, we can just skirt around that. And that's what David's doing here. So why don't we see the log in our own eye? Why don't you and I see our log sometimes? I've got four reasons. First reason, you and I may not see the log in our own eye is that we're blind, that we can't see it. I mean this in the sense that we're kind of numb to it, right? Think about that rock you get in your shoe and it really bothers you for the first minute, but then if you don't take it out over the course of the day, you don't even notice it anymore. You've become callous to it. Maybe that's where we're at, that we've got some sin in our life that we haven't addressed, that we haven't looked at, and we've just become callous to it. We're blind to it. And so what we need is we need others to point that out. That's why we have small groups and community and family and friends to say, hey, Destin, you got something. Let me help you out. So number one, we may not be able to see the logs in our eyes because we're blind to them. We can't see them. Number two is this. We might be self-righteous. There's nothing to see here, 
right? It's like if you ever confront someone and say, you have a problem with anger. I don't have a problem with anger. He's like, oh, there you go, you know? And see, I mean, in self-righteousness, it's very similar to blindness. It's just blindness with arrogance. Blindness with arrogance. And so in that situation, we need humility to say, you know what? I, I may not be perfect. I may have some room for improvement. Another reason we may not see the log in our own eye is that we're just lazy. Man, this is me sometimes. I'm, I'm not willing to see it. Or if I am, I'm not willing to do anything about it. Right? We might say, what can I say? I'm just a guy. I lust. That's what guys do. God made me to lust, so I'm just going to do, you know. And we're not willing to address an issue. So maybe we're lazy. Maybe the last reason we don't see the log in our own eye is that we're insecure. We just can't bear to see it. I mean, what, what if I'm really exposed? What if people really know that I'm not as good as I think I am? They're going to think I'm worthless. And so in that instance, what we need is we need grace. We need grace to say, you know what, no one's perfect. No one's got it all figured out. And in Christ, we can make it better. So kind of mid-sermon application, just give you a few seconds to think about this, to write this down on your own. What might your plank be? Why can you not see it? What do you need to do about it? What might your plank be? Why can you not see it? And what do you need to do about it? It'd be a great Thanksgiving conversation to have at the table when all your relatives are in, right? Just ask them. <laughs> you will see any planks mine? Now, here's the fun part, right? Jesus is about to educate us. He's about to equip us, and he's about to empower us to go take out some specks. And you're like, yeah, that's what I'm about, right? Time to get those specks out. And he's going he's gonna to do that for us. And here's what he says right here. Verse 5, you hypocrite. Well, that's not very empowering, <laughs> you know? That's what Jesus is doing. This is still part of the reflection. Jesus is not going to turn you loose to go take specks out of people's eyes when you're going to log in your own. You've got to turn. You've got to reflect on yourself. Because what if you go to someone, you're trying to take a speck out of their eye, and you've got a log in yours, you're just going to push them away. They're going to say, why should I listen to you? You won't even look in the mirror. You won't even address what you're trying, and you what you're trying to address in me. And so a hypocrite is this. It's a Greek word for an actor wearing a mask. Someone speaking falsely. It's interesting, you know, I've always heard that a hypocrite is someone who doesn't live up to their standards. If this is my standards and this is where I'm a hypocrite. That's not true, right? If, you, if this is your standard and you fall short, that's just called being sinful. A hypocrite is someone who knows they're here and pretends to be up here. I, I, I'm pretending I don't have any logs. I'm pretending I don't have any specs. And I'm coming at you. That's a hypocrite. And Jesus is saying, we cannot do this. We can never condemn, we can never judge in a critical sense, but you can help someone out after you've got the log out of your own eye. And that's what he says there, continuing in verse 5. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus doesn't say it's wrong to help a brother out. He just says it's wrong to do it with the log in your own eye. Galatians 6.1 even tells us this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression... You who are spiritual, a.k.a. those of you who have looked in the mirror, taken the log out of your own eye, should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So here's the question I think we have to ask. Who can we help? We never criticize, never condemn anyone, but who can we help? Well, the text tells us it's a brother. 
And I think there's three parts to the definition of a brother. First is this, it needs to be a fellow Christian. I don't think you and I have the right to go pointing specks out in non-Christian's eyes. Right? That's not our place. How, why would we ever try to hold someone to a standard they don't hold themselves to? It's like if you saw me at Muya after the service, I'm chowing down triple bacon cheeseburger, right? And you walk in and you go, ha, I got you. You're not eating vegetarian anymore. I'd be like, I never said I was. You know, I love me some beef and cheese and bacon, right? I'm like, and so you'd be trying to hold me to a standard that I'm not holding myself to. It's almost like we're trying to impose basketball rules on a football game. These people are playing by a whole different rule book. And so it's not you and I's job to go help and get the speck out of their eye. It's not a fellow Christian. The second part of who is your brother, a fellow Christian in the same community. It probably ought to be someone you know. It probably shouldn't be someone across the globe, across the nation, across the state, maybe not in some of the other churches around here. It may just be someone in this church. Maybe that's all Jesus is giving you the right to do is correct someone, lovingly correct someone in this church. But I think the focus even narrows further than that because it's a fellow Christian in the same community you regard as family. I mean, isn't that why he uses the term brother? It's a familial term. He says, hey, unless you're doing life with someone, unless you're walking with them, you're really there for them, you probably have no business pointing specks out. I wrote this, and I may be wrong about this, but here's what I say. If you can't be there to help take the speck out, you probably shouldn't be the one to point it out. I just think there comes a responsibility to say, hey, brother, you got a speck. Let me walk with you. Let me do whatever it takes to to help that out. How arrogant is it of us to go around speck, 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 but not do anything to help them? So how do we help a brother out? Two steps. First, take the log out of our own eye. Notice this is awesome, right? It doesn't say take the speck out of your own eye. Why? Why does this just say take the log? Because if we had to take the speck out, we would have to be perfect before we help anybody else. And we'd never help anybody else because we can never be perfect. So Jesus isn't saying you have to be perfect before you go help someone. Just look in the mirror, address your blatant sins, Have some humility, then go forward and help a fellow Christian in the same community you regard as family. So the first step is to look in a mirror. Here's some great questions to ask yourself before you go help a brother out. What is it about me that I get so bent out of shape over the speck in their eye? What is it in me that makes me so emotional when it comes to the speck in their eye? What is it in me that is causing me so much grief about the speck in their eye. Ask that question. Pay attention to your emotions. Do you feel anger, resentment? Are you threatened? Are you jealous? Say, God, what what do I need to do? Why do I feel this way? Maybe because a little bit about what we feel and bothers us and other people might be right here as well. And so we go to God and say, God, if their sin bothers me so much, there's probably something in me that's bothering you so much. Maybe your prayer sounds like this, going back to Psalm 139 that Michael read for us this morning. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me. Lead me in the way everlasting. So the first step is not be a hypocrite. 
to look in the mirror, remove our planks, then the second step is we will now see clearly to remove a speck from a brother's eye. Two quotes on this. First one, ignorance of ourself is often mixed with arrogance toward others. The second quote, clear vision is needed for just assessment and delicate correction. So we all know, we understand this principle, you can't help someone out unless you're in a position to help someone out. And and so many times I wonder how we've let brothers and sisters go by and we could have been there, we could have helped them out, but we had our own problems and issues we hadn't dealt with first. I mean, I think about when I was growing up and, you know, my dad, I was learning to ride a bike and he would just like kind of do this straddle waddle thing behind me. He was there, ready to help me out when I fell. If he's not there, if he's not beside me, if he's not walking with me, he can't help me. And that's what we got to do in this passage. If we want to truly help and love our brothers and sisters in Christ, we got to get in ourself, ourselves in a position to help, first of all. And so finally, Jesus comes to a reminder, a reminder. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, to understand this passage, we have to realize that dogs in the Scripture have no positive connotation, right? There's not a good reference to dogs in Scripture. They're wild scavengers, right? Don't think house pets, think hyenas, all right? That's what he's referring to here. In the text, it says the dogs will turn to attack you. That's what he's connecting together. And then pigs were unclean beasts. And that hasn't changed much. It's still probably true today. And he said the pigs will trample the pearl underfoot. So we have to realize, what is it that's holy, and what's the pearl? What is it they're going to turn to attack? What is it they're trampling underfoot? And it's this. It's the gospel message of the kingdom. And, and so Jesus isn't saying here, hey, don't go evangelize. Don't go take the gospel to people. What he's saying is, when you take the gospel to people, when you try to lovingly correct a brother, just be aware that some are going to be hostile to the gospel, and some are going to be hostile to you. That's what he's reminding us. This verse here is a balancing verse with the rest of the scripture. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, the main message is this. Don't be judgmental. Matthew 7, 6, the main message is this. But don't be naive either. It's a balancing verse. Disciples must not be overly critical, nor must they be oblivious to evil. Think wise as serpents, innocent as doves, innocent as doves. So here's the main point, the bottom line for what Jesus is trying to say to us. Make judgments. Don't be judgmental. Make judgments. Don't be judgmental. Three areas disciples must make judgments in. You and I, as disciples of Christ, we must make judgments about decisions. We have to know what's right and what's wrong, what's good, what's bad, what's pure, and what's evil. Jesus is telling you, make judgments about that. I've given you a brain. I've given you a a way and a rule. Follow that. Make those judgments in a decisive sense. We have to make judgments about individuals. I mean, all through text we see Jesus calling people brood of vipers, hypocrites, dogs, pigs, enemies. And he's just speaking truth in that. He's not going to hate them. He's not going to condemn them for that. He's just saying that's who they are. We have to make decisions about who we hang out with, who we let our kids hang out with. We're supposed to make decisions about that, but not be critical and judgmental toward them. We're supposed to make judgments about teachings. 
in Matthew, there are people come to Jesus and they say, hey, we, we prophesied in your name. And Jesus is going to tell them, depart from me. I never knew you. Those, those prophecies were false prophecies. We've got to make judgments about teachings. Jesus talked about the burdensome teachings of the Pharisees. In Hebrews, it tells us this, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. You and I, as disciples, must make judgments about decisions, about individuals, and about teachings. But while we do that, we must never be judgmental. And here's why. Three reasons. Being judgmental doesn't help others. It it hurts them. It belittles them. It will never change them. I mean, how crazy to think, you know, if I scold someone and I criticize someone, I get on to them, that they're just going to want to be like me. Sure, that's really going to work, right? It doesn't help. It doesn't change. It actually pushes them away and pushes them further into the sin when I am judgmental and condemning toward them. I mean, how many people have left church and ran away from the church because someone with the log in their eye is pointing at a speck in another person's eye? How many people, I mean, when you talk about people who don't go to church, why don't you go to church? Probably one of the most common answers is the church is judgmental. They're condemning, they're criticizing, they're belittling, and they're hypocrites. I've got to look in me and fix my problem. Could you imagine if we did that? If church wasn't, you know, if we spent as much time worrying about our own sin as we did about everybody else's sin, people might not run from the church. They might run to the church for help. I remember the story Donald Miller told in a book, Blue Light, in a book, Blue Light Jazz. He goes to a university. He's a student there. And there's this party that happens every year. It's, it's a Mardi Gras on this college campus. The worst of the worst. Super pagan party. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And so he says, he sets up a confessional booth in the middle of the party, right? This is great. He's going to sit there and take confessions. And so people who are drunk just come stumbling in to the confession booth, and they sit down and start to confess. And Donald says, no, 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 no. This confessional booth isn't for you. It's for me. And he starts apologizing to them on behalf of all Christians. I'm sorry we've been hypocritical. I'm sorry we've judged you. I'm sorry we haven't lived up to the standard that God has called us to. Could you imagine what those students' response was? How open they would be to Donald, to the gospel? What if we could be like that? So being judgmental doesn't help others, and it doesn't help ourselves. We've already talked about this. We invite judgment back on ourselves when we're judgmental. We don't work on ourselves because we're too busy working on others. And we become a more hurtful person than helpful. We actually leave this world in worse shape than better shape when we're critical and condemning to others. Third reason why we shouldn't be judgmental is being judgmental doesn't help our relationship with God. Again, you go trying to take God's role, you got to answer for that. That's not great. He doesn't just love that, okay? When we become prideful and angry and jealous and threatened, this is going to choke up our spiritual life. We're not going to have great quiet time with God. We're so busy being angry and jealous in life. And lastly, it's not fulfilling our role. In Corinthians, it tells us we're to be ambassadors of Christ. You and I are given the ministry of reconciliation. Our job is to partner with Christ in the redemption and the restoration of all things. That's our role. Leave the Spirit's role to condemn. 
So how do we make judgments without being judgmental? Best example in all of Scripture, three words. Love your enemies. You have to use judgments to know who's friend and foe. And never to be condemning and critical to them. Just judgment of others can only be rendered when one has first judged oneself. So to wrap up the sermon, we talked a lot about those of us, myself, who judge. But I briefly want to mention to those who feel judged by others. Maybe you've got a right to feel judged. Maybe some people have come at you, they have no business coming at you, they have big logs in their eyes and they're pointing out your specs. So you just throw up your wall and you just say, don't judge me. You don't know me. Who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. Maybe you have a right to do that. But maybe that's just a defense mechanism for your insecurities, for your blindness, laziness, or self-righteousness. So maybe we just walk around saying, don't judge me, don't judge me, don't judge me. Maybe there's really someone in your life that loves you, that has looked at themselves first, and they're coming to help you. They love you too much to leave you alone. Would you be brave enough to let down your wall and let that brother speak truth into your life? So to sum up, yes, you and I can make judgments in a decisive sense and a judicial sense. But you and I are never to make judgments in a critical sense where we're condemning others. Yes, you can lovingly correct a fellow Christian in the same community who you regard as family only after you've looked in the mirror and searched your soul and taken the plank out of your own eye. Let me pray, and we'll have a great time of worship to end. Lord God, thank you so much uh, for this text. It's not a speck removal text. It's more of a log removal text. It doesn't give us license and permission just to go around pointing out specks in everyone's eye. It's really to look in the mirror to have some humility, to assess ourselves. And so God, I pray that you would help us to do that. Give us some humility. Help us to see the log in our own eye. If we're blind, lazy, self-righteous, or insecure, that you would use others in your spirit and humility and grace so that we would become people who love you. We would become people who are in a position to help fellow Christians in the same community that we regard as family out. God, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.